Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another summer special, episode number 236. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. It's been a summer of chaos in our politics and in our national security. And after all this mayhem, a lot of folks just want to check out. And they're probably at the beach or at a barbecue or just turning off news and politics entirely. But not this show. We need to keep a focus, and I'm going to try to bring you some fresh content, even though I'm taking a break too. Now, especially, is a time to stay vigilant. I'm here with the prosecutors and investigators who have worked diligently on the investigation of criminal attempts to interfere in the administration of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. Today, Based on information developed by that investigation, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. The indictment includes 41 felony counts and is 97 pages long. So here it is. Here comes the next one. Another indictment. It's all turned out so much worse than we all could have possibly predicted when he was elected. And our enemies are celebrating yet again. 13 felony charges against Trump including RICO, conspiracy to commit forgery, filing false documents, solicitation of violation of oath by public officer, and more. And Trump, of course, is running for president again and now faces 91 criminal charges across four indictments. Well, happy summer, America. What he's done continues to be revealed. And it's all turned out so much worse than anybody could have possibly predicted when he was elected. And it's far from over. And yes, our enemies are celebrating because America continues to be divided. Violence continues across the country. Concern is deep and broad. And the American insurgency continues to evolve. It's something we've focused on for years on this show the growing number of violent domestic extremists who want to take down our government. And last week, there was another example that maybe you missed. A dude in Utah was shot and killed by the FBI. And he was a straight-up card-carrying member of what I've called the American insurgency. He had weapons. He had publicly stated he was going to commit violence. He said he was going to kill Joe Biden, who was headed into Utah just a couple hours later. This is the threat I've been flagging for months. It's real, it's dangerous, and it's growing. And it's all fueled by leaders who condone and even support it. Of course, including Trump and his allies like Peter Navarro and former General Mike Flynn. But it's also fueled by sitting members of the Senate, like white nationalist-loving Senator Redneck, also known as Tommy Tuberville. And that story continues to evolve as now three senior leadership posts in the Pentagon are vacant. 
Tuberville continues to hold hundreds of promotions up into September because, of course, Congress is on break, so nothing's happening now. And in the meantime, military families are under stress. Leaders are filling two positions in military commands, and families don't know what country their kids are going to start school in this month. And maybe finally this summer, the pressure is loading up on Tuberville. There was a public poll conducted recently that found that 58% of Alabama voters think Tuberville has, quote, made his point, and he should, quote, now allow senior military promotions to move forward. 58% of people in Alabama say cut this shit out. But I'm surprised it's only 58%. But as this story continues to percolate, I think more folks in Alabama and more folks across the country will understand how it's bad for our military and bad for our national security. It's the worst kind of politics from a politician who's executing a tactic that I have now called political suicide bombing. He doesn't care what he blows up in support of his ideology and his extremist agenda. And there was more Tuberville news this week, because there's news every week now that he's under the microscope, and he also, like Trump, continues to be revealed. There was a new story in the Washington Post that found that he actually doesn't live in Alabama. According to campaign finance reports, his home is actually a $3 million, 4,000 square foot beach house that he's resided in for two decades in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. So Senator Redneck representing Alabama, doesn't even live in Alabama. And this should surprise no one. Because he's proven over and over again that he's the worst kind of politician. He's driving away more and more independent Americans and even more Republicans. And he continues to show his lack of honor, integrity, and focus on our national security. Senator Redneck continues to be revealed. So as we head into the final days of August, Senator Redneck continues to be revealed. President Mayhem continues to be revealed. Hunter Biden, in fairness, continues to be revealed. And independent Americans, the 49% of us that are without a political home, remain left in the cold, remain frustrated, but remain motivated and focused on the future. us also remain focused on issues of national security, and one this week that many Americans have forgotten about. Two years ago this month, Afghanistan imploded, and I've called it the great American betrayal of Afghanistan. Whether you believed in us leaving or not, which I do think was the right decision, the way we left was catastrophic. Two years later, and just a month away from the anniversary of 9-11, Most of America isn't even paying attention. Most of the media isn't even covering it. But two years ago, one year ago, and again now, we will continue to focus on Afghanistan. We talk to folks on the ground. We talk to policymakers. We talk to veterans. We talk to spouses. We talk to folks in the humanitarian space, all who are concerned about the future of Afghanistan, which remains in the hands of the Taliban, where women have no rights, 
the economy is in ruins, and a humanitarian disaster grows by the day. This is the mess we left behind. And in my view, since the invasion of Iraq, there has been no greater foreign policy disaster in American history. So in recognition of the fact that most of America is not focused on it, we are going to focus on it. I'm taking a break from new conversations, but we're going to flash back to a conversation I had two years ago this month with then-Congressman from Michigan, Afghanistan veteran, and independent-minded Congressman Pete Meyer. Now, a lot has changed in the last two years. Afghanistan's gotten worse. Pete Meyer, as a moderate Republican and an independent-minded person, was knocked out of Congress. And most of America has forgotten about the war. But the people of Afghanistan can never forget. Our veterans can never forget. Just one year from the anniversary of 9-11 that started this whole invasion of Afghanistan, we should never forget. And after this conversation, I hope you never forget. So here's my conversation with Pete Meyer. Big shout out to all of you for giving us all the support throughout the summer and for giving me feedback on this show. Please keep it coming. Special shout out to all our Patreon members, especially the newest ones, including Loma79. And my old friend Dave Bubaroff is now a member of our Patreon community. He was the kicker on our football team and a damn good one. And now he's a doctor doing great stuff. But thanks to all of you who've joined our Patreon community. If you haven't already, go check us out at independentamericans.us. Please continue to share this show far and wide, and if you haven't already, subscribe for free now. The summer is a time of heat, and we're going to continue to bring the light, and most of all, ensure that we never forget. Here's my conversation with Congressman Pete Meyer. So welcome back to the implosion of Afghanistan. Welcome back to a conversation about Forgotistan. Welcome back to a conversation that will help us all never forget. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 236. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, around Afghanistan, welcome back to our continuing series focused on Afghanistan, the aftermath, and what's next. I am very grateful uh, to bring uh, a man to this program that is a voice of the moment. We've brought you folks that have been deep in this experience, that have been leading on various levels. And this is a guy that I think is really important for this moment but also this bigger moment in America and some of the issues we dig into about political division on this show. He's a man I've known for a long time now. I think he's a heroic, uh, courageous, thoughtful public servant, and I'm proud to call him a friend and have him, have him on this program. The great and powerful Congressman Peter Meyer joins us here on Independent Americans. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate you making the time and excited to have this conversation. And we both dress down a little bit, which is good for folks watching on video, uh, because uh, I think it's a reflection of the fact that you're a real human being. <laughs> and I think a lot of folks kind of lose a bit of the humanity when they go into Congress. So from the moment you went into Congress, I was uh, I was excited and I was hopeful. And I think, you know, you've uh, you've delivered on a lot of that in terms of your integrity and other things that we consider important. Um, but let me ask, where do we actually meet? Was it was it through Team Rubicon when you were working at Team Rubicon? 
Yeah, I think it was probably or either TR or Student Veterans of America, SVA. Um, so probably a decade ago. Yeah. Change. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we served together on the board or the advisory board for With Honor, which is an organization trying to get veterans from both sides elected. Um, and I think you've, you've really, really risen to the moment. And I hope that this program and others will help people understand a little bit more about you and, and why you're so important for this moment. But let me ask you a question, Pete. I ask of everyone, where are you? Uh, where are you right now? And how are you? Yeah, I, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, we're in district. Um, we, we were, were supposed to be on August recess. Obviously, uh, that became curtailed by both responding to Afghanistan and, and Speaker Pelosi called us back to, to vote on some of their domestic priorities. So I'm in my house in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm, I'm doing well. I, I've had my first cup of coffee. So we're just plugging along. I want to get into a lot of elements of the last couple of weeks, but let me ask you kind of kind of a tactical or maybe even an operational and strategic question. Do you feel like Afghanistan is getting less focus from Congress quite simply because they are on right recess and because so many people at this time of year are on vacation? They had, you know, we got kind of third stringers on television that maybe the country and especially lawmakers are not around and, and weren't planning on being here. Probably make the argument both ways. You know, on the other hand, um, the fact that we aren't dealing with other pieces of legislation by and large meant there was more time to focus. I mean, if we had to deal with, um, you know, if, if this, if the collapse of Afghanistan had occurred while we were, you know, in session, voting on bills all day, attending committee hearings all day, um, there would have been a lot less time to dedicate to some of our casework efforts to get people out. So I think just the volume of requests coming into congressional offices uh, were, were pretty astounding. Um, you know, we, our, my team, and then having, I was involved with the SIV issue. I wrote, a, I wrote an op-ed for the Daily Beast on SIVs back when the Iraq SIV program was lapsing in 2013 under the Obama administration. So this is something I've been following for a while and had been involved with a bipartisan group back in April. Um, and, and, you know, Matt Zeller, I mean, with, you know, those outside groups and also an inside cohort of us in Congress urging the Biden administration to clear away some of the backlog that they had inherited. Now that the withdrawal date was set, it was time to move fast to get these people out. They did not heed our warnings and waited until the end of July. And, and that's one of the reasons why we saw the chaos that we did. But, you know, I think from a congressional standpoint, um, our office, uh, you know, Cobble fell, I believe, on a Sunday morning. Um, by that Sunday evening, we'd held a conference call. We had retasked a quarter of our staff to be exclusively focused on this issue. Um, by midweek, the following week, we realized even that was probably inadequate for the task at hand. And so we onboarded um, probably the oldest intern at Capitol Hill, but one of the organizers of the outside effort so that we could directly plug in between the civilian volunteers, the, the veterans community, former diplomats, um, former DOD officials, uh, journalists, that whole large group uh, that was working on organizing um, with the committee staff we had to be directly plugged in with state and DOD, you know, at that um, congressional level as well. So uh, I think for most congressional offices, this was something they had to work to spin up because they didn't have the, that muscle memory. Um, and so, but I, I don't think that this occurring in August was necessarily bad on the congressional side. Now, when you had a president who was, you know, 
taking vacation or on vacation, kept trying to get back to that vacation during that time. You had a secretary of state who was on vacation. You know, I think from a White House perspective, they were expecting things to be smooth sailing and, and, and much more calm. So I think that was probably the bigger hurdle to just how this timing unfolded. But I got to say, if you're an adversary and you want to pull something off, um, you know, August is not a bad time, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there, there's a strategic component here end of august or around you know christmas new year's is kind of a time when when you know that a lot of america is shut down and i think you know that answer peter is is a reflection of your vigilance but also your connection to this issue that maybe some of your colleagues don't have and i want to pull that apart you just got back from afghanistan you actually went there in the midst of all this shit you know right before the service members were killed when there was a feeling that this was fading Right. And I thought that the White House was trying to make it fade. Hey, this is a good news story. We're getting a lot of people out. Look at how many babies are being born on planes. Uh, You have served in the army in Iraq. You served in in Afghanistan as a civilian. You worked in Team Rubicon in a humanitarian organization. So you understand this from a couple levels. You go to Afghanistan. You're a Republican with Seth Moulton, another combat veteran who's a Democrat. You caught a lot of flack for it. You got a lot of support for it. Um, I want to ask you, uh, you've, you've answered why you went, but I know, I know you'll make that a part of this answer. But now that you've had a little bit of time, um, what is the most important, most important thing you want people to know about that trip? What did you see that we couldn't see? I think from the outside, you couldn't see just how vulnerable American forces were, just how dependent we were on the Taliban. Uh, we went to the old domestic passenger terminal um, on the civilian side. And there, I mean, this is a place that I've been dozens of times when I worked in Afghanistan, both when I was flying, you know, to, to Kandahar or to Herat, um, or, you know, there, it was adjacent to the international terminal. So anytime I was leaving or getting back into the country and, it, you know, obviously a, a spooky kind of zombie apocalypse feeling where places that you used to have throngs of people and tight security, you're now just wandering through, you know, with a couple of soldiers here or there. Um, but outside there, there were maybe a half dozen soldiers sitting down on, on swivel chairs with desks turned over uh, and safes and other you know equipment kind of creating a little bit of cover if they needed to for a firing position. And then just a couple of meters in front of them, a bunch of barbed wire, a couple of meters in front of them uh, was a, a line of cars. And behind that was the Taliban. I mean, that this was where they would come and have deconfliction meetings on a daily basis where um, the Taliban in the U.S. would sit down and work through, you know, what issues they were having, uh, resolve any disputes. Um, you know, this was not a, a U.S. military post that was ready to defend itself. This was a, a very vulnerable American position that was completely dependent on the Taliban's goodwill uh, in order to affect not only getting people through the gates, but also getting our forces out of the country uh, on a small airport with a single runway in a pretty crowded urban environment. And I think that was one of the reasons why both Seth and I went in thinking we need to make the argument to, to give our troops more time. We need to figure out how to push beyond the 31st. And after talking with the commanders, after seeing that, we realized we're not in the, in the we're not right now in a position to ask for anything from the Taliban. Right. That's not to say that we couldn't, you know, kill a lot of Taliban if we wanted to. We couldn't, you know, return to, um, you know, some type of fighting position. But then you're talking about trying to evacuate thousands of American soldiers, you know, from a single runway that can be disabled with one well-placed mortar round. I mean, so again, we were just not in any type of position to to 
frankly, anything. And that was just staggering to me. In addition to the vulnerability of our folks at those gates, I mean, we saw what happened to Ghost Company at Abbey Gate, um, the, the horrific uh, ISIS-K attack there. Um, you know, I think that's something that wasn't understood on the outside as it looked Okay, maybe there were times where it was not orderly, but it looked like we had a plan here. I mean, to the extent there was a plan, it was cobbled together by the folks on the ground, some of whom fled the U.S. Embassy with with minutes notice, got to the Kabul airport after it had been overrun by tens of thousands of civilians, had to restore order and, and clarity there, and then immediately pivot to affecting this incredible massive evacuation, screening people on the outside, trying to provide security, but also increasing that throughput as much as possible to get American citizens and our loyal Afghan allies to safety. So, uh, you know, this, um, I have, I'm, I struggle to think of a more perilous position that we have put a U.S. forces in, in the last 20 years of, of conflict. Mm. And just yeah. How untenable. <laughs> I, I could see that from afar, having been an infantry platoon leader. I remember being in Iraq where there were thousands of people around us, three Humvees on foot. They said, if they ever come at us, we're gone. We're, you know, one suicide bomber and we're incinerated. So I want to dig, dig deeper into what you're saying and what, what Seth has been saying. I don't think anybody in the media has really pushed you on you. So you went over there and said, I want to extend. You came back and said, we shouldn't extend. But you're saying we shouldn't extend because it was so fucked up. That it was it was absolutely vulnerable, and we had to get the heck out before it could get worse. You weren't saying we shouldn't pull people out, we shouldn't find oh, no. alternatives. This wasn't oh. urgent, and I think that got a little bit lost in the sauce here. You guys came back and said this is so bad, it's so far gone that we got to get the hell out of there because it could get so much worse. Which is what all of us who have been in situations like that could really see, which was kind of an ultimate soft target, and that was a failure of leadership too that I want to get into. But am I right in, in kind of shaping up how you guys saw this? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, why would we want to extend? We would want to extend to be able to evacuate more people. But if we extended without the acquiescence of the Taliban um, and in the Taliban, either, you know, just don't let anyone else in. Boom. Mission failure. We're not going to be able to get more people out. Or if it came back to the U.S. and the Taliban directly fighting us. Well, guess who's caught in the middle there? Right. I mean, all of the people that we're trying to rescue. So at the end of the day, I mean, again, this is not between a good option and a bad option. It was between a bad option and a worse option. And, and that was, I think, the, the reality that was really driven home that I think was hard to see from the outside. I mean, we can kind of feel it from that, that kind of crowd desperation standpoint and just looking at the base relative to its surrounding areas. Uh, but thinking through just why is it we want to extend and some folks just rattling the bang in the war drum. It's like, OK, yeah, again, we could kill a lot of them. They would kill some of us. But if we're doing that in order to get people out, that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, th we do not have that leverage. We do not have that tactical advantage. We are fighting from a weak position and there's really nothing we could have done to strengthen it. So we've been focused on the effort to save our allies, which I know you have been as well. We've had Matt Zeller on, we've had Jane Horton on, we've had others on, and we've talked about the moral imperative. We've talked about the strategic imperative, how this is a betrayal for the folks on the ground. When you and Seth were there, you were there when a lot of folks, especially Democrats who were trying, a very few of them, but a few Democrats and, and people in the media were trying to defend Biden saying, this is going great. Look, no Americans have died. That was the line. You kept hearing it over and over again. And all of us were waiting for the haymaker, right? You don't say something like that because you've been there and you know how precarious that is. You guys get back. You catch a bit of flack. 
the, the you know the service members are killed. Now here we are after the deadline, and what I view uh, has happened is the president and especially Jake Sullivan and other spokespeople are spiking the ball and saying this is a good news story. Look at how many we got out. This is over. I believe it's not about how many we got out. It's how many we left behind. Um, I don't think this is a good news story. I think it's a catastrophic leadership failure. And we have to separate the withdrawal from the evacuation because those are two separate things. But can you answer for me, Peter, in your view, as a congressman, uh, what do we need next? What needs to happen right now? And will there be accountability in Washington? And can you be a part of that? Because we've heard Biden's going to go get ISIS-K. He's not going to who's he going to fire in Washington because he doesn't seem to think anything went wrong. But no. but all, most of us who are being honest and who are not partisan see how much went wrong. So what happens next and what, what can you and Congress ask for next? And and will how and will that include accountability for leadership failure? Yeah. So, so I mean, we need to obviously continue to get the Americans who want to get out who are stranded and our loyal Afghan allies who weren't able to get out. We need to continue to affect that evacuation. Uh, we need to make sure that that evacuation doesn't put individuals at risk with, um, you know, uh, challenging and perilous conditions on the ground and cutter, you know, that we are safely vetting and in processing those individuals, both safely in terms of making sure who's coming to the U.S. is qualified to come to the U.S., but also safely in terms of the, the living conditions that they have. Because after Seth and I were in um, Kabul, we went to uh, we went to Ali Asalim in Kuwait. We went to Al Udid in Qatar. You know, we saw the other components of that lily pad evacuation strategy um, and, and some concerns that we brought back to D.C. flagged for leadership um, and are making sure that we're working to address directly with the people on the ground there. Um, now, I, I kind of have three main takeaways uh, for what we need to do next. You know, obviously on the evacuation front, Jason Crow and I just introduced a bill yesterday to raise that SIV cap and to have the SIV also be eligible for some of the people who were not just interpreters, but um, you know had worked directly for U.S. organizations supporting the mission and had put themselves at risk. Uh, and we saw yesterday the coverage of the Voice of America journalists. I mean, again, these are people directly working for the U.S. that have been targeted and killed by the Taliban in years prior. So we have an enduring obligation there. And then we also have a strong obligation, or we also must be working to address why the withdrawal went so catastrophically. I hope that there are some resignations because there are some individuals, you know, who should, to your point, not be viewing this as a mission accomplished moment, um, but really view this as, you know, we we made the best of a bad situation, but we're, those individuals are partially responsible for the bad situation. Second, getting... Um, Congress to be back in the driver's seat around two things. One, intelligence analysis. Uh, we should have a congressional in independent intelligence analysis bureau. We don't trust the president to give us accurate budget numbers. And so we have a congressional budget office. But when it comes to intelligence analysis that underpins you know, our military strategies and underpins our, our bearing and security in the world, uh, we somehow have that blind trust and faith um, that the you know, uh, several, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars spent in that realm, you know, Congress just is given cherry picked reports that can easily be either, either manipulated or just highlighted in such a way as to derive whatever conclusion the executive wants us to derive. 
And then we need to look at the broader issues of, of war powers and authorizations. This is something that I was championing since my first day in office. Uh, so we're still operating on this post 9-11 AUMF, very open-ended. It was intended for Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda, uh, ended up getting drawn to 19 countries, um, going after groups that didn't exist on 9-11, going after groups that were actually fighting Al-Qaeda when we were targeting them. So we need better authorizations because I think every member of Congress every two years had to give an up or down vote on whether or not to continue this mission in Afghanistan. Uh, they would have asked a lot better questions and the president and their executive team would have had to give a lot better answers. And then we need to be focused on just accountability, a 9-11 style commission, uh, not just on the past you know, two and a half weeks, but on the past two decades. You know, what went wrong and how and why did it endure so long in terms of our Intel, our you know, just national security imperatives, you know, how we aligned resources. Uh, why is it that at any point in the past 20 years, you could ask a general, what's our mission in Afghanistan? And you'd probably get a different answer, right? I mean, these are all questions we need to ask. These are lessons that we need to learn. And beyond just learning them, we need to apply them so we make sure that no other American service members are put in that impossible position. So an important question I wanted to ask you, Peter, was about the AUMF. So there's a lot of talk about it, especially within the military veterans community, the intelligence community. We know it's a blank check for the president. Is this the moment? Can we actually end the AUMF? Can you and Seth and these other folks who understand it and who, and who understand, you know, there's a lot of folks say, bring all the troops home. They have no idea how many troops we have in how many places. There were reports that we have troops in, in, in Congo. I mean, they, most Americans don't know this. Is this realistic? Can we get this done? I think we can. And again, just having... Getting rid of these old AUMFs does not mean we lose any defensive capability. The president's commander in chief under Article 2 still retains the ability to operate in self-defense of our forces or our country. Um, we're working on something similar around emergency powers. And the goal isn't to completely neuter the president and, and tie his hands. The goal is to say, listen, we understand there's going to be emergency circumstances you have to react to quickly, but you cannot use that excuse to draw something out indefinitely. Right. I mean, if you think of how many members of Congress who are serving today were actually around in um, what September, October of 2001, when this uh, AUMF, or sorry, September of 2001, when this AUMF was passed, um, you know, that that is just a delegated authority that we need to recapture. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that Congress is going to fix problems, but it's it's a institutional remedy in order to, again, force that question, force members of Congress to take a sense of ownership over it, but also force the executive to be, have to better articulate what exactly we are doing and why and create some measurable outcomes. So in order to get outcomes, we have to have effectiveness. And you have been uniquely independent in your views and in your practice and in your voting, uh, you were one of the few Republicans to vote for the impeachment of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, I have two questions for you because this is independent Americans. Number one, why are you a Republican? Why are you not an independent or something else? And what do you think is the future of the Republican Party? Is it you and Kinzinger and Liz Cheney or something else? Or is it Trump? And and how are you going to influence that over the next you know year, especially when it seems like it's so critical to the preservation of our democracy? Yeah, I, I guess I'll answer the second question first because it kind of leads back into to the first question. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't think that having 
an, an orientation either towards an individual or towards a personality or opposed to an individual or opposed to a personality. I don't think either of those are healthy outcomes. Um, to me, we have to boil down and distill what it is, what are the principles that we actually believe in. Those principles to me, and this is why I'm a Republican, are limited government. They are you know, having that limited government be effective and competent, but having it be limited and recognizing its own, um, its own limitations and having a sense of humility there. It's also you know, just that economic freedom, that sense that so much growth and prosperity and opportunity comes from you know, being able to participate in the economy, being able to you know, get that upward social mobility uh, within you know, an entrepreneurial environment. And so you want that economy to be as unconstrained and unmanipulated as possible with you know, some relevant checks, but not, um, not centrally managed and centrally planned. And then also that focus on, on individual rights and on the individual, you know, as an entity that is uniquely endowed, um, you know, by our creator. So that, that sense of limited government, economic freedom and individual liberty to me is why I'm a Republican. Uh, I think when the, the democratic response to just about every problem is, you know, what can Washington DC do rather than first asking the question of, is this a problem that can be solved by the government? And if so, what is the lowest level that it can be solved? Because that lower level is going to tackle it a lot more effectively. If you have a pothole, you want to call up, you know, your local road commission. You don't want to petition your member of Congress to get a bill passed in order to allocate funding that's going to come down, you know, a decade later. So all of these are reasons why I'm a Republican. But again, uh, we we have to have a Republican Party that's oriented around core values and hues closely to them, rather than one that just tries to chase whatever the populist sentiment of the moment is. You're fighting a lot of things right now, Pete. Um, so, a lot of it's, it's, yeah, well, and a lot of allies. You're, you're, you know, you're kind of carrying the spirit animal of John McCain and other mavericks who've come through the Republican Party, and there probably there definitely aren't enough of right now. But if you know, if Trump is the nominee again, do you stay in this party? Uh, I, that, that is a, a question to ask in, in 2024, and, and not in 2021. Um, you know, again, right now. Um, I have to I have to narrow my aperture uh, to the tasks at hand. Well, I need to let you narrow your aperture to the next thing you need to do. I'm really grateful for this much time, for your focus, for your leadership. You're one of those guys who didn't have to go to Congress, and I'm glad you're there. We need more people who don't have to be there, who we need who we need to be there. And you're a guy, I don't care what party you're a part of, I'm going to support you and root for you and try to help you everywhere I can. I'm, I'm rooting for you, especially on the demands for accountability around this, around the insurrection, around so many other things. Um, thank you for all you're doing, man. And we really, really appreciate you, uh, the great and powerful Congressman Peter Meyer. Stay vigilant, my friend. Thank you, Paul. Media.